Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can bow your heads and uh, use that time to make sure that you are in right relationship with God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we look around us, there are so many things that happen that, that cause us to just scratch our heads. We, we wonder, we don't know why you do certain things, and, and yet we know your timing is perfect, and we have to just relax and trust in you and know that you, your plan is a perfect plan, and you're working things out according to your, your schedule. And Father, that applies when you suddenly take a faithful servant of yours home to be with you. It applies when we look at things that are happening on the world stage. It is also true when we face situations and crises and surprises in our own lives and that we need to learn to trust in you, to walk with you, and to be relaxed because you're in control. Father, we are reminded as we study Scripture that we are here to serve you and you have called us for that purpose that you might be glorified. Our primary mission is to be a witness uh, to the gospel, a witness in relation to the spiritual life, that those who look at us can see a difference in our lives as we apply your word. It's not just a matter of learning it, but applying it so that God the Holy Spirit can transform us uh, from what we were as unregenerate unbelievers following the world to your beloved children, adopted, justified, reconciled, redeemed, who are being transformed from faith to faith. And Father, we pray that you would encourage us from your word this evening and help us to understand it more fully, more completely. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're running ahead this evening into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be here for a while. This is one of those sections that immediately starts off with... Uh, uh, with a few doctrines that are significant. Now, the way, reason I say that is tonight we're going to get into the study of the doctrine of election, which in verse 2 in the English is tied to the doctrine of foreknowledge. But if you look at it in the Greek, the word elect, elect ones or select ones or choice ones, we'll see how we ought to translate it, is actually in the first verse. So it, 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 uh, that's why I have this down as 1 Peter 1, one. when in English that word actually doesn't pop up until you get into the beginning of verse 2. Now, in our previous lessons, we've been taking our time going word for word, and that's important because the thoughts of Scripture develop from the very words of Scripture. And we fully understand that when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, that that is a word that means breathed out by God. It is not a word that is, the English word is not used in its normal sense where we may think of a writer as being inspired, uh, the writers of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution being inspired or Shakespeare being inspired or uh, some uh, painter or other artist or vocalist uh, giving an, an inspired rendition of something. These are words that relate to just an elevated talent from the human sphere. But when we look at the word that is used in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is theopneustos in the Greek and it means breathed out by God not that the 
that the writers generate this from themselves, as Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 talks about, that men were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, and that they what they wrote was guaranteed to be free from error by the oversight of God the Holy Spirit, and that inspiration didn't just apply to the thoughts that they had, but the very words that those thoughts were communicated with. And if you just change from one synonym to another synonym as you express a thought, you suddenly change the sense of that thought, the impact of that thought. So the very words are important, and there are examples of Jesus as well as Paul building a doctrine or basing a doctrine on the grammatical form of a word or whether it's a plural or a singular form of the word. So inspiration extends to each word. Now, sentences are comprised of words. And in grammar, a sentence is an expression of a thought. Now, that thought may have multiple levels to it. If you have a compound uh, sentence, then you have probably two distinct thoughts that are combined together in one sentence. If you have a compound complex sentence, then you have a lot of secondary and tertiary ideas that are added to that primary thought that's expressed by the, by the sentence. So we start off with a sentence, and we have to, to understand the whole. We have to sometimes break down the parts, especially when we get into controversial areas of doctrine like what we get into in the second verse, controversial areas of doctrine where we've heard perhaps an erroneous or popular teaching on a verse, and that applies to both the primary verse we're looking at this evening in 1 Peter 1-2, as well as another one we're going to get to in Matthew chapter 22, where it's sort of taken on a popular life of its own. But once we start digging down into biblical idiom, we suddenly realize that the way it's entered into evangelical parlance or even the idiom of the world, it doesn't mean what most people think it does. We saw a great example of that when we were studying in Matthew chapter 5, when we were talking about the light, that, that we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And that concept of the salt of the earth has been taken by so many people to have something to do with preservation. And we looked at that and how it's used both in Matthew 5 as well as in the parallel verses in Luke and saw that this is an idiom that doesn't have anything to do with preservation at all, but that salt was often used in the ancient world as a component in fertilizer, and the idea of salt of the earth isn't the idea of somehow preserving the world, because why in the world would God want to preserve the world? The world is at enmity with God. So why does he want to preserve it? Why would Christians be those who preserve the world? And we saw that the word in the Greek there, geis, doesn't have anything to do with the world. It's always used in reference to the land. Many times to the land of Israel, but many times just to land itself as that which produces, uh, that which is used in agriculture. So it's the salt of the land. And then we saw that salt was often a component in uh, in the manure piles, in the compost piles, and that salt would be a component because it would be used to kill weeds that were in the, in the soil. So it was a component that was used even up until uh, the 19th and early 20th century. Salt was a component in natural fertilizer as a weed control. So the idea of that idiom isn't preservation, but the idea of that idiom has to do with fruit production. And this was the, what the disciples were called to is to be a light to the, a light to the world which illuminates through the revelation that they've been given, but also to be productive and as disciples and as Christians we are to be productive. So that's an important idiom. Now we're going to get to another one today that, that should change the way we think about this particular idiom, but unfortunately like salt of the earth, that is so ingrained in our thinking that I need to remind you of what it really means every day for the next five years, and then maybe you'll remember it. Because it's so much a part of everyday English idiom. You hear it on news, you hear it on this, and apply it to all kinds of things, that so-and-so, that guy is just the salt of the earth. 
We're not using it like the Bible uses it. We've taken that idiom out. We didn't understand it. We misapplied it. Well, we're going to see one of those tonight as we get into this this whole doctrine related to election. So we studied Peter. We studied his life in three lessons. Last week I looked at the doctrine of apostleship. And then in the English the text reads, to the pilgrims, the paradidomois. And this is an important word in the Greek that is restricted in its usage to a to the Jews. It was used to refer to the Jews who are in the diaspora who are scattered. So they were viewed as pilgrims, as aliens, and I've chosen to translate this word not as pilgrims because that first the first way most Americans hear the word pilgrim is what? Think about sixteen twenty. You think about the pilgrims coming over from England and, and and that's that's not the idea there. Second idea might be somebody going on a spiritual pilgrimage. They're they're gonna go if they're Muslim, they're gonna go to Mecca on a on a Hajj, which is a pilgrimage, or if they're a Christian, they might go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to Israel, or if they're Jewish, they might go on a pilgrimage to uh to, to the uh, Temple Mount, to the uh, Western Wall. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. So pilgrim isn't the best word. These are those who are scattered. They're resident aliens, we might say, who are living throughout the Greek and Roman world and beyond who have who are outside of the land of Israel. And at this time in the first century, the vast majority of Jews, maybe as many as 80% of the Jewish population in the world in the first century, lived outside of the land. Today we live at a time when about 49%, 48-49% of Jews in the world live in Israel. There hasn't been that high a percentage of Jews living in the land, the historic land of Israel since 722 B.C. This is just remarkable what is, go- what is going on right now in terms of the Jews returning to, uh, to the land. So they are called pilgrims. That tells us that this has a Jewish tone to it, especially when it's connected to the next word, and they are resident aliens of the diaspora. Resident aliens of the diaspora. And and you will read about 95% of commentaries, and you were probably taught this wrongly, whoever you listen to, because very few people catch this. I, I was thrilled a couple of... Uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I was reading a biography that I discovered on my laptop that was written in the 18, uh, 1870s by a uh, British pastor on the life and letters of the Apostle Peter. And this guy understood very clearly that Peter was writing to Jewish background believers, just as James is writing to Jewish background believers, just as the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish Christian audience. And in the early church, the early church was composed mostly of Jewish Christians, so we have to understand his original audience isn't a bunch of Gentiles or even a Gentile-Jewish mix. He's writing to specifically deal with issues that faced a Jewish Christian audience. They were in the diaspora and the location. We'll look at this eventually. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these are all areas in what we call Turkey today, uh, what was part of the Roman Empire at that time. And we'll come back and look at that. But in the Greek, the way this reads is to the eclectoids, to the elect resident aliens the elect resident aliens of the diaspora. So that word elect in the Greek is thrown up into this first uh, prepositional phrase at the beginning of verse 1, so we need to tackle it. Now, for purpose of translation, it is usually put at the beginning of verse 2. That is because this adjective is modified by three prepositional clauses. And even though in the Greek it is separated by the locations, by the statements about the resident aliens of the diaspora and then the locations, nevertheless, these three prepositional phrases modify that word eklektos. So it's elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in sanctification of the Spirit, that's the New King James Version, as you'll see, that should probably be translated by. It is a preposition related to means. So it should be translated elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you have your salutation, uh, grace to you and peace be multiplied, or it reads better if you translate it, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here's the structure that we have. I broke it out this way. We have our noun, uh, our adjective elect, uh, eclectois. It's in the plural, so it's elect ones. It's, it's talking about a, a group, elect ones. And then we have these three prepositional phrases. Each prepositional phrase modifies or expands the thought of election. It's not just, you know, one, two, three, and four. That's not the order. It's one and then one A, one B, one C. I'm trying to communicate the fact that these three prepositional phrases all equally modify that, that word elect. So the first line, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, is expressed as a translation of the Greek preposition kata, which always references a standard. It's according to the standard of something. And that standard is the prognosis, the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is a critical passage for understanding election being related to God's foreknowledge and what in the world that means. So we immediately are thrown at the very beginning of this letter into an understanding of those doctrines that have so divided many Christians between those who are in the determinist camp, the Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists, and before there were Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists, there were other groups, there were uh, groups such as the Augustinians and the Pelagians from back in the uh, 4th and 5th century A.D., and then you had another group uh, later on in the Middle Ages that divided between the Jesuits and the Dominicans and the, uh, <clears throat> and the theological uh, opposition between the followers of a man named Bañez, who was Spanish, and Suarez. And that gets into another very important issue because Bañez was one of the very first to articulate the position that that is close to what we hold, and that is that in foreknowledge, God knew all of the knowable. He not only knew everything that that would take place, but he knew everything that could take place. And so there was a big debate, whereas the Dominicans... Uh, those in the Dominican order, such as Thomas Aquinas, held to a view of God's foreknowledge and election that was not dissimilar from that of either Martin Luther or John Calvin. So these issues between the free will camp versus the determinist camp, uh, to use uh, terminology out of uh, out of philosophy, it's been going on since since the early days of, of Christianity, and is an outgrowth and been influenced heavily by the same arguments that go back into ancient Greek philosophy over uh, free will versus fatalism. So we have to sort of work our way in detail through some of these issues. Some of you are going to get a little bored over this because you're just happy knowing whatever you know and it makes sense to you and that's just fine. Others of you ask me all kinds of technical questions and so I have to answer those as well. So we're going to work our way through this. It'll probably take two or three weeks to go through these doctrines related to election and related to the foreknowledge of God. But it's important to look at this in terms of, uh, of what the Bible says here, that this elect, whatever that means, is according to a standard. It involves a specific means of accomplishment, and it has to do with a specific purpose. So it's according to the standard of God's foreknowledge. It's by means of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And just to give you an understanding that this is talking about positional sanctification, that's going to be important for its relating this back to the meaning of eclectos. So it's by sanctification of the Spirit, not experiential sanctification. That would then make election predicated upon 
good works. It's going to be based on uh, positional sanctification, which takes us to uh, imputed righteousness that we receive at justification by faith alone. And then it is for the purpose of obedience. See, its elect can't be uh, related to experiential righteousness because it's for the purpose of obedience, which is experiential righteousness. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, we'll see that that word is used over in Hebrews, and that relates to ongoing cleansing from sin. So that's talking about confession of sin, ongoing cleansing by the blood of Christ. And we'll connect that over to 1 John uh, 1, 7 and 1, 9. That 1 John 1, 7, we're cleansed continuously by the blood of Christ. Okay, that's the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. That is the ongoing process. Now, the way the mechanics of that works is in verse 9 of 1 John 1, we confess sin. So the reason confession of sin works is because the death of Christ on the cross is continuously applied to the sin in our life. So that when we sin, when we are confessing our sin, what we are saying in effect is, Jesus died for this sin, therefore, God, you're required on the basis of the paid penalty of sin in the work of Christ on the cross to forgive and cleanse me from this sin, and that's the basis for me telling you what I have what I have done. Okay, that's our introduction. So we get to this word that we find here. It's the plural form of the uh, second word I have on this slide, the word eclectois. It's eclectois, O-I-S, in the, in the uh, text, which is the dative plural, and it is eclectos in its singular form as related to uh, uh, the adjective, rather, I said noun earlier, it's an adjective, and then the noun form is eclage. So we'll look at the details of this later on. I just want to start off. It's always important to look at the words and to understand their significance. So we have the first word, eclectos, is used 22 times in the New Testament, and we'll do an analysis of that a little later on, and it's generally translated elect or chosen. It's generally translated elect or chosen, the first word is the verb that I have on the slide. I had them in different order in my notes. On the slide, the first word is eklegomai, which is a verb, and it means to pick out for oneself, to choose out of a group, uh, to choose or select a person or thing from a sizable number. Now, there are many places in, in um, ancient gr- Greek where it's related to what we would call an election. You're going to go and you're going to select from a bunch of candidates, just like uh, the Israelis did this last uh, Tuesday when they went to the polls and they selected from a group of candidates who, which party they would they wanted to represent them, and then uh, and 30 percent of them selected the Likud party, and the uh, head of the Likud party is Netanyahu, so this gave him the biggest victory that they've had, the largest number of seats. They'll have 30 seats in the in the Knesset this time, which was a huge victory for them. They were expected to tie with the Zionist Union, and this really gives him a mandate, a conservative mandate, to run the uh, the government in Israel. And it's interesting, his election, I think, is going to have a lot of positive consequences, but I think it's going to have some unintended negative consequences because I think that there are certain people in this country, in politics in this country, that had such a vested interest in trying to change uh, what's been going on in Israel because they want to give up everything to the uh, to the Iranians. And trust me, when I came back from APAC and talked about that, if you weren't here, if you didn't listen to that, you need to go listen to that because this has really shaped what's been going on in Washington for the last uh, three weeks. Since then, there was this letter that uh, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas authored, and that really irritated the president and a lot of the Democrats because he's basically telling, uh, and these Republican senators who signed it are reminding a foreign power that, that... Ultimately, any agreement according to U.S. law must be signed off on by the by Congress, and they must approve it. Now, I don't know how many of y'all, I would bet 
And I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourself. Maybe it's not embarrassment, but I don't know how many of you all watched uh, Mika Brzezinski interview Ted Cruz yes, uh, day before yesterday on Morning Joe on MSNBC. But it was interesting because he was emphasizing this very point. She was trying to skewer him as one of the signatories of this letter that what you're doing is you're trying to, to undermine the negotiations. And he made an excellent point because he's, he's been part of a negotiation team uh, back, I believe, in the Reagan administration on our, our Bush administration on something like this. And frequently he said negotiators, in order to... Uh, avoid wasting their time will say to the person they're negotiating with from another from another foreign country uh, they'll say we can't put that in the treaty because it won't pass congress they won't approve of it so let's not waste our time with that and so so in effect what the republican senators were saying to the iranians since the administration's um, uh, representatives negotiators we're not telling the Iranians that, look, let's not put all this stuff into, into an agreement because if it's there, Congress won't approve it because the president wants to do an in-run around Congress. He doesn't want Congress to have to approve it. He wants to act like he's a dictator like the Ayatollah Khomeini and, uh, and just, just pass it and ignore Congress. But what the senators were saying is, no, 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 it doesn't work like that in, according to the Constitution, that foreign treaties have to be approved by Congress. So, Iran, don't waste your time fighting to get things that, you know, we're not going to approve of. They weren't trying to undermine the negotiations. They were trying to strengthen the backbone of the negotiators to get something that can actually be approved and will actually work. Of course, the comeback from the uh, liberal Democrat side is that, well, there are only two options, some kind of agreement, bad, good, or indifferent, some kind of agreement or war. But it's like, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm going to get in trouble here because somebody's going to fall in love with Huckabee. I can take or leave Huckabee. I mean, he's a believer and he's a nice guy, but I'm not sure he's presidential material. But he said something I think was absolutely brilliant the other day. He said that Netanyahu is is a Churchill in a room of world leaders that are chamberlains. And he nailed it. That is exactly right. And what we've got is a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who who want to come out of Geneva, i.e. Munich, with an agreement, anything, so that they don't have to face the harsh realities of a possible war or doing something really tough that could have negative consequences. Chamberlain did the same thing in Munich in 1938 with Hitler, and he got an agreement and came back and said there'll be peace in our times. And if he had just held his ground in Munich in 38 and been tough, it wouldn't have led to war. Hitler, like any bully, would have backed down. And that's exactly what needs to needs to happen uh, needs to happen now. So. Elections are important. Elections have consequences. And one way in which this word elect is used is when we go to the polls and we make choices of one out of a group. But as we'll see, that is only one area in which this this word works. Uh, Let me give you a preview of coming attractions. This word is applied to Jesus. Did God select Jesus from a group of people? Did God select Jesus from a group of Jews to be the Messiah? No, of course not. Did God? The Trinity have a holy huddle in eternity past with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God said, okay, I'm going to select Jesus out of this group here. So, Holy Spirit, you're out. Jesus, you're in. Is that how it's applied? Not at all. So the word elect does not necessarily entail this idea of selecting one and rejecting others or selecting one out of a much larger group of others. That's just one way in which the word is is used. So we have to get to the core meaning. So these are the the three words, the verb, eklegomai, the adjective, eklektos, and the noun, ekloge, uh, which is only used uh, seven times. It's interesting to see how these words are used. Now, what's what's important, I try to teach pastors this, it's important to know what these words mean in English. 
one of the the way in which these words mean in English. You look a word up in a Greek dictionary, and it will say, okay, um, eklektos means elect or chosen. Now, those are two different words with two different fields of meaning in English. So what the next thing you need to do is go to the English words and find out what does the word elect mean in English? What does the word chosen mean in English? What are the various synonyms for those two words in English that give us the field of meanings, the nuances that each of those words mean? Because the Greek word isn't necessarily restricted to just using those two words to translate it. Those just represent the, the whole range of meaning that, that this Greek word represents in terms of two English words. That's why in other dictionaries you might have six, seven, eight different words used. So in this slide, what I've given you is various other uh, related English word meaning synonyms so that elect has as its meaning the word appointed. So that's somebody who's appointed to a task. Now, if you tr- were to translate eclect, a klegomai or eklektos with the word appointed every time it's used, you would get some screwy results, but it would really change the way you read and understood a lot of these passages. For example, here, to the appointed ones. Well, that gives you a totally different concept and idea than the idea elect ones. Why? It's because as evangelical Christians who've always heard this word election understood within a Calvinistic sense of unconditional election, when you change that word to appointed ones, it changed your whole understanding of that concept. So appointed is a legitimate way of translating the word designated or determined. The word choice, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means something of very good quality. So you can also translate this word, the choice ones, or the choice one. I think that's, we'll see, that's how it's applied to Jesus. He's the choice one, not the chosen one. Two different ideas. Choice has the idea of something that is of very good or excellent quality. It's referring to to something that is the best. Uh, something special, something valuable. So if you translate the word as choice, you're focusing on a qualitative idea. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's where we're headed. This word choice is a qualitative idea. It's talking about the character, something special about this group that makes them choice. Not chosen, but choice. They are excellent Then select is another word that's used in the verb. It means to carefully choose something as being the best or the most suitable. And the adjective, it has the idea of something that's carefully chosen from a larger number as being the best. So that just gives us the range of meaning of these words. And then we have to go into the text and understand how these words are actually used in the text. Word meanings determined by usage, not by what the dictionary says. No matter what you try to tell your kids, when they use a word like ain't, suddenly I remember about the time I was a kid, ain't wasn't in the dictionary. By the time I got out of high school, ain't was in the dictionary because people used it, and therefore it had meaning. And there are a lot of new words that come out every year that, that uh, like selfie, five years ago nobody knew what a selfie was. Now it's, it's a big word. Everybody uses it. And there are other words that the language changes over time. So that just gives us a basic basic focus. Now we have to look at usage. So we're going to first of all look at Old Testament usage, and that means we're going to look at Romans. Somebody laugh. <laughs> we're going to look at Romans for Old Testament, because Romans points us to the Old Testament. That's The Greek word is used here in Romans 9.11. So turn over to Romans 9 for just a minute before we go further. And we'll just look at this context and read it a minute. This is one of the uh, key passages for the doctrine of election. Now, let me just put a foil out there for everybody. And the standard way in which people understood election and the concept of unconditional election is that God chooses those who will be saved and either passes over the rest and they will not be saved or in double predestination, God chooses those who will be saved and God uh, chooses those who will be condemned and without reference to their 
faith without reference to anything that they anything that they do. And so frequently you will find people go to Romans chapter 9 and if you want to get the details of this you can go back and listen to the uh, lesson I did on it but from 9 6 down through uh 9 um 20 you will find that are even further down to about 9 24 25 you will find that this is a critical passage that theologians will use in talking about election. Now, the place where that word is used is in Romans 9.11. For the children not yet being born, that's the children of Isaac, referring to uh, Esau, Esau and Yaakov, Esau and Jacob, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So that election, that choice that God made in choosing Jacob over Esau is the focal point of this particular passage. And it's really talking about God's choice of Abraham and his seed, his descendants, for his purpose and his plan. But often people go to this passage and they look look at it as if it is talking about God's choice of those who will be justified and those who will be not. The first example that that um, Paul uses has to do with the with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with uh, Esau and Jacob, and then he goes on. He talks as a second illustration. He talks about uh, the quote from Moses that uh, comes out of uh, Exodus thirty three nineteen. God saying, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion." And we looked at that and said, "No, that doesn't have anything to do with justification either." And then the third example had to do with Pharaoh and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And once again, we looked at that passage. That doesn't have anything to do with justification, salvation either, and neither does the first example. So we have to go back. Uh, into the Old Testament to understand what was going on with Abraham in terms of this election of Israel, this election of Israel. So first of all, we're reminded of God's call of Abraham, which is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God calls Abraham to leave Ur the Chaldees, to leave his family, and to go to a land that God will show him that God is going to give him. That calling of Abraham is connected to God's giving Abraham a special covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which promised him a a land, promised him uh, innumerable descendants, and promised that he would be a blessing to all the peoples, to all, all of the nations. So the call of Abraham is directly related to the giving of the covenant to Abraham and marked the beginning of the elect people of God uh, in the Old Testament. It's interesting, the word elect is never used in reference to anyone who is a believer prior to Abraham. You never have it used of Noah or those who are saved prior to the flood or those who are saved from Noah to to Abraham. Therefore, it's not a term that is necessarily soteriological. You don't have it applied to Abraham until God calls him. And when God calls him in Genesis chapter two, chapter 12, guess what? Abraham's already justified. He's already a believer. That calling of God of Abraham didn't have anything to do with Abraham's eternal destiny. It had to do with the role that God was going to give him in history. It, Abraham was not the only believer of his generation. He wasn't even the first believer in the Old Testament. Uh, His nephew Lot's a believer. Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem or Jerusalem that we run into in Genesis chapter um, 14, was a believer. Job lived approximately the same time as the patriarchs. Job was not a, uh, a descendant of Abraham, but he was also a believer. So there's nothing that connects election to salvation, to justification or to individual justification, but that God was calling Abraham long after he was saved for a to execute a new purpose of God in human history. Abraham and his descendants would have a new role, a distinct role in human history, and this is based on this new covenant that God gave 
uh, Abraham that God's promised that he would bless Abraham and his seed or his descendants, and this would extend only through one of his sons, Itzhak, Isaac. It would not go through Ishmael or any of the sons that were born to him by his wife in his old age, who was Keturah. It was only through uh, Isaac. And so it's very clear from that that the physical descent in the line of the seed did not guarantee individual justification and salvation because there were those who were physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were not necessarily individually justified. Physical descent did not guarantee individual justification or salvation. God's choice of Abraham and his seed was not for salvation purposes. It was for this new direction God was going to take in, in history. So the passage that we see in Romans 9, 6 and following isn't related to individual justification, but to God's selection. Now pay attention to this. I'm going to take you back. Most of you were with me when we went through Romans. It focuses on Israel as a corporate entity. That's a huge and important idea, this idea of treating Israel as a corporate entity. And as a corporate entity, Israel is chosen to be, first of all, the line of the Messiah, the line of the seed. The first use of the word seed we saw back in Genesis 3.15 where God promised that the seed of the woman would uh, defeat uh, ultimately defeat and destroy the seed of the serpent. And so that's the line of the Messiah. Now it's going to ex- go through the seed of Abraham. Then the second reason God called out Abraham was that, that his descendants would be the custodians of divine revelation. God was going to reveal himself through uh, through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they would be responsible for recording that uh, revelation and and preserving it and passing it on down through the generations. And then third, they were to be a light to the world, a witness to the idolatrous, pagan, polytheistic uh, world around them. They were to have a missionary impact on the world. So those are the three reasons that God called out Israel as a corporate entity. Now, as Abraham, just as Abraham wasn't called to salvation... Uh, and was called after he already became a believer. Uh, So so, um, why was he called? What was his purpose? His purpose was to serve God. So the calling of God, and that's another term, and I went through this in in the doctrine of calling a lot when we were in Romans 8, 28, and 29, said that the, the doctrine of calling is related to election. And God called out Israel for a purpose, to serve him, not for salvation, but for service. So there's another important idea that we get going back and looking at what happens in the Old Testament. First of all, we see the idea that it's a corporate, the emphasis is on that corporate purpose that God has. And if you remember, when we studied Romans 9 through 11, I kept saying every time you have the word Israel in Romans 9, in Romans 10, Romans 11, God is dealing with them as a corporate entity. So... They were chosen by God for a purpose to serve him. And so the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were to have a unique role of service to God in human history. Now, ultimately, ultimately, that role of service finds its fullest expression in who? In the servant of Yahweh. And where do we learn about the servant of Yahweh? We learn about the servant of Yahweh in the last part of the book of Isaiah. But when we go to the end of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 to Isaiah 66, one of the verses we find at the very beginning relates to what I just taught about Israel being corporately being the servant of God. Now, that doesn't mean that every Jew was saved. It doesn't mean that every Jew fulfilled that mission of being a servant to God. We know they didn't, that many of them were idolatrous, were uh, uh, polytheistic. They, they committed horrendous child sacrifices. Many of them failed to fulfill their purpose. But corporately, Israel was still the servant of God. They were still called the God's son in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 41, 8, uh, God says, but you, oh, you Israel, are my servant. 
Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So that tells us that, that God calls out Israel not for justification purposes, but for service, to serve God, to further the plan of God. And in Isaiah 41, 9, he says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, um, and said to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you, and have not cast you away. There's our word. And it's the, the Hebrew word, bachar, which is the counterpart to eklektos. It's that word, I have chosen you. It's the verb form here. I've chosen you, not for salvation, but for service, to be the servant of Yahweh. Now, in Isaiah 42.1, this idea of the servant shifts from relating to corporate Israel to the incarnate Son of God, who becomes the Messiah, who becomes the servant of God. And here we read in this verse, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one. Now, I want you to pay attention to how that is translated in the English, because I'm going to change the translation so that we get the the, the sense of what this is saying, the word elect is an is a simple and superficial choice, but it misses the point. It says, My elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So he calls the servant, he, my servant. It's a messianic title which is played out in the rest of the uh, section from Isaiah uh, 42 on through 66. He's called the elect or the choice one. We'll see that's a much better uh, translation in just a minute. In whom my soul delights, in whom my soul takes pleasure. Now we're going to see that that verse is the background for something that God the Father says in the Gospels. You all remember when when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, Peter and James and John, and Peter, Peter just puts his foot in his mouth and says, when, when, Jesus, when, when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, says, well, let's, let's build a, a, a little cabin for each one of you up here. And what he's really doing is he's, saying, he's elevating Moses and Elijah to the same standard, the same level as Jesus. And God the Father shuts him down right away and says, listen to my what? Beloved son. Beloved ties that, connects the dots there to this idea of the one in whom I delight. And we'll see that there's other language that slips into the Luke account on that that shows this this connection here. But what we have here is this word, uh, bahir, is the form that shows up here. It's a noun form, and it can be translated the chosen one, the chosen one, the choice one in the sense of the most excellent one. And when it comes to Jesus, as I pointed out already, he isn't choosing Jesus from among other options. He's not choosing Jesus from either among other divine options instead of the Holy Spirit. He's not choosing Jesus instead of other Jews to be the Messiah. The focal point here isn't on uh, election in that sense of the word. It's on the idea of the most excellent one, the choice one, of God, and if we translate it that way, then it has more significance. Now, here I want to give you a quote on this word "bachar" from the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, and the writer on the article for this word explains, after going through several different uh, uh, examples and uses, he says, on the one hand, God chooses a people, Psalm 135:4, His choice of, of, of Israel. He chooses certain tribes. Uh, Psalm 78, 68. He chooses specific individuals, 1 Kings 8, 16, 1 Chronicles 28, 5, 1 Samuel 10, 24, 2 Samuel 6, 21. And notice, none of those choices are soteriological. They have to do with God choosing people or tribes or, or, uh, or an, uh, a group uh, for a purpose, not necessarily to go to heaven. And then he says, and, and a, he chooses a place for his name. In all of these cases, this is what, what needs to be emphasized. In all of these cases, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of choosing. Now that's an important statement. He's choosing for service. It's not just an arbitrary decision. So often when we hear the word unconditional election, then what you hear is God has no conditions on the why he chooses. 
if God chooses this person to be saved rather than that person, and there's no condition that's the foundation for his choice, then it sounds pretty arbitrary that he's just making a choice for his own pleasure without taking into account anything else. And what we're going to see is that, no, God does take into account a host of information in making that choice because, as we see in 1 Peter 1-2, it is according to the standard of his foreknowledge, a word that is often misused and translated as sometimes as predestination even. And that's not the idea of that word at all. So this author of this uh, word study here in uh, TWOT says, in all these cases, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of the choosing. Thus, Yahweh chose Israel to be holy, that was their purpose, and thereby to serve as his witness among the nations in Isaiah 14.2. But her election is not based on her own greatness, but on the greatness of the Lord's love. Now, this writer also goes on to say that the participial form means that is used in one example to refer to the choicest of our sepulchers. Now, let's have another grammar. We're in grammar tonight. Some of you are not happy with that. If you have a verb, if you have a, a, a verb in English, let's say to run, how do you make it a participle? You add an ing to it, and it becomes running. And you can use that participle like a noun. Running is a miserable thing to do when it's cold. We've used running not in a verbal sense, but as a noun to stand for the act of running. Now, that's important. I'm making a point here because the same thing happens in, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, that when you take a participle, that it functions as a noun. A participle is basically a, a verbal adjective. Okay, so it functions sometimes like a verb, and sometimes it functions as a noun. So when you have the word, the verb bakar, and you want to make it a adjective, I mean a participle, you don't add ing to it because it's not English. In Hebrew, you put an m at the beginning, and it becomes mabacharim. And that's exactly what we have on a magnum bar. Okay, so we're back to the doctrine of the magnum bar. And I pointed this out to you many times that, the, that when I was in Israel, and we'd have these magnum bars, and they would have almonds in it. And I, I was asking uh, Amos, our guide, uh, I was trying to learn um, the, you know, modern Hebrew. And I said, okay, what does this say on the level? Because when I go in, and we have these ice cream freezer, freezers in these places where we go, and they have 15 different varieties of magnum bars. And everybody in the group's asking me, well, what's this? Well, I don't know. I can't read Hebrew. So I had to, you know, this was early on. I had to learn how to read these labels and build up my modern Hebrew vocabulary a little bit. And the first word here, which is uh, shekadim, is the word for almonds, plural. And the second word here is mabacharim, which is what I've got tra uh, transliterated up, up here. Mabacharim, and then the, the, the B-C-H-R, that's the root for bachar, which is the word for elect or choose or select. So it, and I said, well, what does that mean, Amos? And he said it means choice almonds. Big flash of light goes off. Because this is the core idea in the word elect here. And see, here it's a participle, and you look it up in uh, TWT, which I quoted earlier in, Greek, in, in a Hebrew lexicon, and you'll see that mabacharim is the participle, is, will be translated choice. But guess what? When you're looking at Isaiah 42.1, it doesn't use the participle when it's describing Jesus. It says, my elect one, but it has that same idea. So the idea of choice isn't limited to the participle. It also is part of the meaning of the noun and the verb. It means that which is excellent, that which is beyond comparison. It is a superlative, and that's developed in the, uh, in, in the lexicons as well. So the idea is, is clearly expressed in Judges 20, verse 16. We talked about that Sunday morning with the civil war between uh, the, the um, uh, tribe of Benjamin and all of the other 
uh, Israel tribes because of the way the Benjamites abused the concubine of the of, of the Levite in uh, in Gibeah. Of Saul, we went through that whole thing on Sunday morning, and in the midst of the description of that civil war, uh, the writer of Judges talks about the excellent marksmanship of the left-handed archers in Benjamin. It says, among all these people were seven hundred. To this people of the Benjamites, among all these people were seven hundred choice men. That's how it's translated. I'm just showing that this shows that within the range of meaning of this word Bahar in the Old Testament which is the background for the word eklektos in the New Testament, we have this idea of that which is excellent or that which is choice. So third point, all that was part of the second point, which is the Old Testament background. Third point is just to be reminded of the importance of corporate identity in relation to Israel and the church. And just to remind you that when we went through Romans 9 to 11, I made that point over and over again, that in Romans 9 through 11, every use of the word Israel had to do with corporate, God's corporate plan for Israel, not individual selection. Because you and I, as a bunch of individualistic Americans, don't have a sense of corporate identity like most people in the world do. Because most people in the world come out of arenas where they have basically homogenous societies, at least up through the ancient world they did, you had you had tribal groups and clans and ethnic groups. If you went to Egypt, everybody's an Egyptian except for some slaves. If you went to Japan, everybody was Japanese. They had a, a, an ethnic homogeneity there, and they thought of themselves in a corporate entity. That was very clear how the Japanese thought of themselves up to, leading up to World War II. They viewed themselves as more as a corporate entity. They had more of a sense of their teamwork. We even see that in Japanese business uh, up into uh, the late 20th century, they think of themselves as as part of that corporate entity, not just as individuals. And so this is this is very important to think that, to realize that the background of this word also emphasizes this this corporate entity. It's not just a cultural concept, but God calls this entity of Israel. But it doesn't mean everybody's going to play the right game or everybody's going to be part of the part of the mission. Now. Back to this. I want to try to wrap this up, tie, tie all the pieces together. Here we have these words that are used uh, that I talked about already, eklegomai, the verb, eklektos, the adjective, and uh, eklage, which is the, the noun. Now, the verb is used some 20 or 21 times, which isn't a lot, uh, depending on how you take a couple of textual variants. So there's a couple of problems, one of which we'll look at in a minute. But most of the times, it's talking about Jesus or God choosing something for something that's totally unrelated to salvation. Uh, Jesus chose his disciples. That's one place where the verb is used. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself. Now, are they already saved? Yeah, they're already saved. And from them, he chose, there's our verb, eklegomai, 12, whom he also named apostle. There's a whole lot of verses where eklegomai is used, and it's talking about Jesus the, the, choosing his disciples for whatever purpose. One of those is John fifteen sixteen, which is usually abused by Calvinists because of their lordship salvation. And uh, Jesus said, you, talking to his disciples, now there's only 11 because he got rid of Judas already, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But this didn't have anything to do with salvation. Je- Jesus didn't choose them until after they were saved. It was almost a year into his ministry before he chose them, those 12, to be his disciples. And though that, the, the choosing of the 12 wasn't so theological because one of them wasn't saved. Judas wasn't saved. He was an unbeliever. Very, very clear. You did not choose me, but I choose, chose you and appointed you. Notice how that word appointed has to do with a mission. Appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. Now, another passage is Luke 9.35. Now, this is the episode of the Mount of Transfiguration when God speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my son, but in Luke, there's a textual variant. If you've got an NASB, this is how it reads. I don't think it's right. I think the majority text is better. What you read in your NKJV is better. It's, it's exactly the same wording you have in Matthew and Mark, and that is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But in the textual variant... 
You have uh, my chosen one. The reason I go there is not because I believe that's right, but it helps us understand how this word is used. It's referring to Jesus, and it's translated as the choice one. This is my son, the choice one, and it makes much more sense there. So uh, that that we find that particular word used in Matthew 9.35, and the verb is also used in Ephesians 1.4, which we'll get to later on, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we have to deal with that in terms of the doctrine of election. We'll get back to that later. Now, the adjective is used some 22 times. Nine times it relates to tribulation saints, um, and uh, uh, two times it's used in Peter, uh, once in 1 Peter 1, and t- uh, 1, 1 and 2, once in 2 Peter 1, 10. It's referred to Christ as the choice one of God here in uh, 1 Peter 2, 4, 5, and 6. And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is what? Choice. See, the writers recognize that. Jesus is choice. He's the choice one. Going back to Isaiah 42.1, he's not the elect one. He's the choice one. That's the best way to understand it. He's choice and precious in the sight of God. That's building right out of Isaiah 42.1. 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a what? A choice stone. Emphasizing the quality, the excellence of Christ again. So this is emphasizing quality, not selection. Now, that takes us up to Matthew uh, 22, 14. And that's the punchline for tonight. So if you'll bear with me, I'll try to hit it real fast and make the point. We'll come back and review it later. But you don't want to tell the joke without getting to the punchline. Otherwise, it just goes flat. So let's turn to Matthew 22 very quickly. In Matthew 22:14, Jesus gives a parable about a wedding feast. I'll start with this next time, but I want to get the point across now. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So kingdom of heaven was important because Jesus is coming to Israel and saying, what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's going to talk about why this is not going to happen and what is going to happen. So he compares this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. There's a a king who's going to have a marriage for his son. The king, of course, relates to God, and his son relates to Israel. And he sends out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So all of those who are friends of his son, which would be Israel, they are invited to the wedding. They're all given the call. Okay? All are called. All are given an invitation. And they're invited to the wedding. And what? They're not willing to come. See, the issue isn't that they weren't called or selected. The issue is they didn't want to come. It's their volition that's determinative, not their selection that's determinative. Their decision was they're not willing to come. So he sends out other servants, and they get, um, they get abused and beaten up and everything else, and that's the next few verses. And then he says to his servants, well, the wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. That's Israel that rejected Jesus when he came to offer the kingdom. So the Jews aren't qualified. This generation's not qualified. And so he says in verse 8 to his servants, he says, Now go out into the highways, go beyond the the initial group, and as many as you find, they're going to the Gentiles, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and byways, and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. Isn't that interesting? There are bad and good people who are going to who are gathered together to come to this wedding feast. They're coming. They're gathered together and the wedding hall is filled with all these guests, including all these people who are bad and good. But most of them have on the right clothes. They have on the right garments. And what's the right garment? Positional righteousness. You can't get into heaven without Christ's righteousness. And that's what happens. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there. Now, he doesn't say he saw a lot of people there, the bad ones. He doesn't say he saw a lot of people there without the right clothes on. He says he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. 
implication in terms of being consistent with the story is everybody else has on the right wedding garment, but he doesn't have righteousness. He doesn't have the right wedding garment. So he, that is the king, says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He doesn't have the right kind of righteousness, the right clothes. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then you get the punchline. For many are called and few are chosen. That's the line I was leading up to early on. That's the line we mostly apply in a wrong way. Many are called, but few are chosen. And this is a verse that's taken to refer to election. And it's usually trained, many are called, but few are elect. So there's this invitation to everybody, but few are, few are elect. So let's apply what we've learned so far about this word, excuse me, about this word, uh, uh, elect or chosen. It's choice. What is, what did I just say choice means? Choice emphasizes quality, not selection. What makes them choice? The ones that stayed there are choice because they are what? They're wearing the wedding garments. What are the wedding garments? Positional righteousness. They've got on the right clothes. They've got on righteousness. See, Isaiah 61.10, see, this isn't just a New Testament thing. Isaiah 61.10 gives us this in the Old Testament. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, imputed righteousness. The people who are in the wedding feast that stay there have positional righteousness. They've got on the right clothes. And that makes them choice. Choice doesn't mean experiential righteousness. It doesn't mean they're select. It means they are quality. They have the righteousness of Christ, the choice one. So when the scripture says that this group is choice, they're choice because they possess the righteousness of Christ, not because God selected them ahead of time. They're choice because they have the righteousness of Christ. And the Matthew closes out in verse 43. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you because you don't have the right kind of righteousness. You're not choice. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. Now, King James, New King James translated ethnos here as nation, but it should be people. It can mean Gentiles, and it can mean nation, but here, you know, it isn't nation. God isn't saying, okay, I'm not going to, uh, work through the nation of Israel anymore. Now I'm going to work through another nation. It's, that's replacement theology. He says, I'm going to not work through this nation anymore because this nation, this generation has just rejected the, the offer of the kingdom. I'm going to work through another people. And that's going to be the church for a temporary period of time till the end of the times of the Gentiles. So what have we learned? We've learned that elect doesn't focus simply on the word idea of selection, but it also emphasizes the idea of quality or being choice, that Jesus is the choice one. Jesus is the choice one, and the Father delights in him, and he is beloved because, for one reason, not the only reason, he is perfectly righteous. He is the righteous one, the choice one, and when uh, we accept the invitation of God then we become choice because we get that wedding garment that is the perfect righteousness of Christ, and we are now choice ones, not because we were uh, picked out of a lottery in eternity past, but because we have and possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. So we'll come back next time and develop this further. Father, thank you for this opportunity to work our way through this word usage, to I try to tear apart this doctrine and come to understand it and the word usage and everything to see how it applies, especially in its usage and its context in, uh, in this epistle, and especially as it connects to the fact that the, uh, these are uh, Jewish background believers. They're the true remnant of Israel. And so this idea of being the choice ones has, has multiple layers of, of significance and meaning. Father, may we be reminded that we are choice, not because of a selection by you, not because of any other reason other than we're choice because we possess the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, like Israel of old, we have a mission and a purpose in your plan. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.